Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. As part of the Association of Yale Alumni Reunion Weekend Events, Professor Paul Friedman, Chester D. Tripp Professor of History, delivers a lecture exploring the relevance of the medieval Christian Crusades to today's conflicts involving Islamic resentment towards the West. So uh, I'm Paul Friedman. I teach in the History Department. Uh, I've been at Yale, uh, it'll be 11 years in September. I taught before then at Vanderbilt uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And my field is medieval history. I also have an interest in uh, the history of food and cuisine. Uh, uh, how those go together, we can, uh, I can tell you in question time if you're interested. I, I just mention it because I had an interview, a phone interview this morning with a radio station uh, in Wichita, Kansas about uh, food and cuisine. So it's uh, kind of peculiar for me to switch gears now uh, to talk about two things with you today. Um, the medieval crusades and the problem of whether or not they are connected in some way with the impact of militant Islamic movements uh, in the contemporary world. Are they a chapter in a long-standing conflict between East and West? And this dual focus is a little bit awkward, uh, especially as I'm going to argue that the connections between the events of eight or 900 years ago and the present are tenuous to non-existent. And it's very odd to have a historian, you know, we spend a lot of time preaching at the public or students or policymakers not to ignore history, to take history into account, uh, that a lot of things are only comprehensible in understanding people's motives over time and their historical memories. Here, I'm going to sort of argue that there isn't a historical connection, or at least there isn't the historical connection that is sometimes drawn between the events of the Middle Ages and of the present. But in order to deal with the question of medieval origins of contemporary religious and political problems, it's necessary to discuss what actually happened in the Crusades. So I'm going to jump back and forth a little. Uh, I hope that won't be too uh, disconcerting. If we go back to the summer of 1095, the pope at that time, Urban II, addressed a general council of the entire Latin or Roman church, which was meeting in the southern French town of Clermont. We don't have an authoritative version of what he said. Rather, we have several conflicting accounts by chroniclers writing after the fact. This speech was apparently an electrifying one, uh, one of the most important speeches in history. The pope called for a military campaign, a holy war, to win back the sacred city of Jerusalem for Christianity. In an age with only primitive means of communication, the spread of the news of this plan and the response to it was staggering and rapid. Even from Scotland, a place then considered the end of the earth by chroniclers, soldiers apparently showed up dressed bizarrely. This is the first description of the kilt. According to the chroniclers, unable to speak any recognizable language, they communicated their purpose by making the sign of the cross. Whether or not this story is true, it, it shows the spread of this idea. The Pope's speech set in motion what would come to be known as the First Crusade. 
there's some debate about uh, the, uh, whether or not Pope Urban had intended to start an avalanche of the sort that ensued, or if he had really only expected a modest contingent of knights to aid the beleaguered Byzantine Empire, who was struggling against the Turks. Whatever his expectations, what he got was a mass movement that included all social levels of the Christian faithful. The fall of Jerusalem to the Crusaders four years later in 1099 was considered a miraculous triumph for Christianity, an event of almost literally apocalyptic dimensions. The capture of the Holy City was marked by the killing of nearly all its Muslim and Jewish inhabitants. The First Crusade ushered in a period of battles between Islam and Christian forces in Palestine, Syria, Egypt, and the Mediterranean that included several more large-scale crusades, none of which was, from the Christian perspective, as successful as the first. In 1291, with the fall of the city of Acre, the Christian presence on the eastern Mediterranean mainland was ended. But the spirit of the religiously inspired warfare against the infidel survived in such later phenomena as the fight against the Turks in the Balkans, or the Spanish reconquest of Muslim Spain, or the Spanish expansion of that campaign across the seas to Mexico and Peru. From later histories, we have at least some notion of the topics touched on by the pope at Clermont. In his speech, Urban II appears to have stressed the atrocities supposedly committed by the Turkish powers that held the Holy Land, describing the horrific torture, disemboweling, and execution of Christian pilgrims. But by 1095, Jerusalem had been in Muslim hands for over 400 years. So the emphasis here was not on Islamic possession of Jerusalem, but rather on the persecution of Christian pilgrims. Beyond these stories of mistreatment, Urban outlined something more revolutionary, and that is a vision of holy warfare. He contrasted the soul-damning internecine fighting of feudal Europe with the waging of a just war in the name of God. This was new. Popes and clerics had allowed for the existence of just wars since St. Augustine. But here we have a war that's not merely forgivable, but holy, virtuous, bestowing spiritual merit on its participants. In line with tradition, the pope claimed the ability to forgive sins and their consequences and have that forgiveness recognized by God. As successor to St. Peter, to whom Christ in the book of Matthew had given the power of the keys of salvation and damnation, Pope Urban II offered those who pledged to go on this expedition spiritual benefits that were widely interpreted as what would later be called an indulgence. That is, a wiping clean of the slate of sinfulness. And this is important in a world in which getting ahead usually meant engaging in warfare and killing people, and so committing quite obvious and bloody sins. So the opportunity to atone, and to atone by doing what you liked best, <laughs> had a clear attraction. This 
combination of military and spiritual venture combined what would at first glance appear to be contradictory notions. A life devoted to God on the one hand and a life devoted to armed violence on the other. But these are the two things that most characterize the Middle Ages. If you were playing one of those games, you know, where you have to describe a plot in five or ten words, now, what is the plot of Hamlet? You have ten word limit. Here you could summarize the Middle Ages as warfare and intense religiosity. Four, or something like that. To combine these two, warfare and intense religiosity, was therefore to create a powerful instrument, an idea that would last for centuries. The term crusade was never used in this era. It's an historian's word dating from the 19th century. Medieval preachers and the popes use understatement. They speak of a trip to the Holy Land <laughs> or an armed pilgrimage. But it was indeed a holy war of Christians against Muslims aimed at the places associated with the life of Christ, a war that conferred heavenly rewards as defined by the pope. And this compound of ideas formed the basis of a series of immense and largely unsuccessful campaigns from the late 11th century until, or according to some interpretations, even beyond the discovery of America. I'm going to describe in outline the peculiar twists and turns of the crusading movement after the startling success of the First Crusade. But before that, I want to turn to the impact of the events of September 11th, 2001 on both popular and academic understanding of their significance. It's certainly not among the important aspects of this set of atrocious acts on September 11th that it gave new attention to medieval history. But we who teach this period have noticed the peculiar impact of 9-11. There are three things that have had this effect of increased student interest, increased public interest. And it's, it's a very odd combination. Uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, uh, is number one. Number three, I guess, is Harry Potter. Um, and 9-11. It's a very odd combination. And I'll save remarks about the Lord of the Rings for another occasion, another reunion, maybe. But there are many reasons why the 2001 attacks came as such a surprise. And here I'm not talking so much about the intelligence information, but the conceptual idea of religion and politics combined in this particularly lethal way. Because in a general sense, the notion of religious violence or religious wars is uh, alien, or supposed to be alien to modernity. In colleges, uh, we so seldom teach, uh, certainly not as a requirement, the religious wars that mark the course of Western civilization. That is, we teach them, but they're in outline, and you're not going to get a lot of student interest in a course entitled The French Religious Wars of the 16th Century, unfortunately. These conflicts between Protestant and Catholicism ravaged Germany, devastated the Netherlands, and eventually recoiled on the great fortress of Catholic militants, Spain. The Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648 almost destroyed Germany, 
Yet this supposedly religious war featured such cynical maneuvers as the French simultaneously repressing their own Protestant population while supporting the German Protestants against the Habsburgs. Against both the fanaticism of religious enmity and the manipulation of this fanaticism, scholars such as Montaigne, Hobbes, Locke, and eventually the founders of the Enlightenment advanced this idea of separating church from state. The primacy of religious toleration in the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights is the product of a positive concern for people to form their own opinions and the result of a well-founded fear of equating religion with loyalty, belongingness, or nation. The age we now live in is disturbing because the combination of religious and political fanaticism and callous disregard for human life that accompanies such convictions is by no means dead, as it was supposed to be. This attitude of religious and political fanaticism can't be fit into a template of rational actors that scholars of globalization, economists, futurologists, and political scientists sometimes assume. Rational choice theory has problems with situations in which people are willing to act on the basis of extreme ideas that don't make sense in terms of material self-interest. If people behave in this way, then they're hard to predict, and their plans are hard to understand. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. In the 1990s, the orthodoxy was the, de the defeat of communism would mean the expansion of freedom and the end of nationalist, religious, and socialist mythologies that previously had caused wars. We'd all be too busy shopping to bother with ideology. <laughs> Outside a few remote and irrelevant enclaves, it was going to be inconceivable that people should be motivated to kill others for immaterial ideas. The history that was supposed to have come to an end in Francis Fukuyama's famous The End of History was the hatred of others for injuries in the past. This was an accurate diagnosis, but an inaccurate prediction. History is a dangerous form of knowledge, particularly half-digested history. If you look at some of the unfortunate enclaves of religious sentiment and violence of the 1980s and 1990s, such as Northern Ireland or uh, the former Yugoslavia, there was, on the part of the combatants, an extraordinary knowledge of history. So that, for example, the Battle of the Boyne in 1689, the Battle of Boyne in 1689, is a great defeat for Catholic Ireland and celebrated in a provocative way by Ulster Unionists, Protestants a way that routinely provoked riots and bombings. Everyone involved in those controversies, and indeed everyone in Northern Ireland, whether directly or indirectly involved, and in the Republic of Ireland, knew about the Battle of Boyne. One might have dreamed of a time when young people might not care about this battle, or have never heard of it. And indeed, that time has arrived, at least in uh, the booming and sleekly modern Republic of Ireland. You know, people uh, are as unlikely to have heard of it as if you asked a random sampling of people um, uh, on the Yale campus. Uh, the same with the Battle of Kosovo in the 14th century, when Serbian Christian armies were annihilated by the Turks. 
This defeat is the touchstone of Serbian nationalism and identity and is one of the reasons the Islamization of Kosovo and its separation from Serbia is so resented. It will take a long time before this battle is forgotten. Thus, Fukuyama's insight was that the forgetfulness of history, or setting it aside, detoxifies. Even if the world becomes homogenized, you know, even if people are drinking at Starbucks or buying Swatch watches everywhere, this bland sameness would, uh, it is asserted, be better than the grand and terrible conflicts that have characterized the past. So why are we surprised by what is going on? I would say, again, it's because history and religion are not supposed to act this way. When in his first interview after September 11th, Osama bin Laden referred to the tragic loss of Al-Andalus to the Christians and referred to it as something he was trying to reverse, not only were broadcast journalists baffled what this reference to the fall of Islamic Spain uh, meant, a process that culminated in 1492, but it seemed to be astounding to be murdering people now out of resentment over something that had happened 500 years ago. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, a lot was said about Islam's failure to modernize and its medieval ideas of religious orthodoxy or armed religious struggle, or segregation of women. It's certainly not correct that these are medieval ideas because Islam in the Middle Ages was probably more open in general and tolerant than Christianity. Our colleague Maria Menocal's book on 10th century Cordova, The Ornament of the World, had an important contemporary resonance for it showed that Muslim-ruled multi-religious and ethnic societies existed in the 10th century. A society that was not only brilliant and wealthy, but uninterested in orthodoxy or even religious uniformity. Modern extremist forms of Islam are modern, born as a reaction against the West in the 19th and 20th centuries. They have very little to do with some age-old conflict between the Islamic and Christian worlds. I certainly, uh, uh, they, they certainly don't go back to the medieval crusades. Before the modern era, Muslim thinking about the Crusades was uh, 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 scarce. There was very little of it. After all, the Muslims had won. <laughs> the Eastern Mediterranean remained Muslim from 1291 until almost exactly, well, um, uh, 506 years later, when Napoleon carried his global wars into Egypt. And this was then followed up by the European dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire. And it's at this point, when Egypt came under British influence, or Syria and Lebanon became basically French uh, provinces, colonies, that the idea of this being an extension of the ancient European Crusades came to be asserted in Islamic intellectual circles. But what about the Crusades? On the one hand, the jihadist Islamic spokesmen who appear on Al Jazeera seem to be obsessively interested in these distant campaigns, while on the other, the West in general, and the US in particular, has no idea of the reverberations or pseudo-reverberations of the distant past. So now it's the West that doesn't think about the Crusades, as witness the furor created when President Bush called for a crusade to rid the world of terrorism. 
the reaction that that got in the Islamic world led to the abolition of the word from the White House's vocabulary. But seriously, I mean, how could anyone believe that allied or American armies in Afghanistan or later Iraq were the expression of some long-term Christian plan? There are some ways, but uh, uh, really the accusations against the West in the Islamic world tend to be not about Christianity, but about the ungodliness of the West, the absence of religion, its materialism, its immorality. The matter is further complicated by the third religion in this situation, by Judaism. The First Crusade marked the first mass murder of Jews in Western European history. Crusaders passing through the Rhineland towns of Mainz, Worms, and Speyer particularly justified massacres of the Jewish population as destroying Christ's enemies in Europe first before taking on others in Palestine. The growth of an aggressive Christian consciousness in Europe coincides with the rise of anti-Jewish feeling and legislation, which would later result in the expulsions of Jews from most Western European countries. The connection between crusades and anti-Jewish feeling has ironic modern overtones, as one of the themes of militant Islamic attacks against the West is that Christian attacks on Islam are also secondarily an expression of Jewish financial conspiracies. Yes, well, I mean, I don't have to show that the jihadist interpretation of the Crusades is wrong. But what is significant is Islamic opinion of the Crusades before the rise of more stridently anti-Western Islamic movements. Muslim chronicles of the era of the Crusades depict the Westerners, whom they called the Frange, the Frange or Franks, as barbarians, great fighters, unusually ferocious, capable of any atrocity to terrify their enemies. It's the French, the Francs, who are portrayed as terrorists, capable of such acts as killing and then eating their Muslim prisoners for fun. The Muslims see themselves as maybe not tough enough for these savages. The incident in which the Crusaders ate their prisoners was actually the result of desperate hunger. We know this really occurred because the Crusaders wrote to the Pope about it in order to obtain absolution. They said they were, they were really hungry. <laughs> in Muslim chronicles, however, the acts of cannibalism show the fanaticism of the Crusaders, who are not, therefore, thought of as religious, but rather as criminals, bent on frightening their enemies by their potential for gratuitous violence under cover of religious uh, ecstasy. After the Crusades, as I said, the Islamic world paid very little attention to them for centuries. Only when the European colonial powers started to take over the Middle East. In anti-colonial writings among Muslims, then the Crusades were brought back as a precedent for European aggression. But the enemy this time was not really Christianity, which was weakening in Europe, but modernization or European modernization. There was an ambivalence between those who condemned the Islamic world for not taking on science, the embrace of the secular world, and other attributes. But others in the Muslim world condemned all aspects of European influence as sacrilegious. 
But the latter, that is this condemnation of European ungodliness, uh, leading to what has been called Islamic fundamentalism, had nothing to do with a real reaction to the Crusades, but to something far more contemporary. What about European attitudes towards Islam? The Crusades notwithstanding, in the Middle Ages, opinion of Islam was not nearly as reverse jihadist as you might expect. Not only were ancient Greek philosophy and medicine transmitted to medieval Europe via Arabic translations of medical and philosophical works, but in matters of fashion and even cuisine, the Muslim influence on medieval tastes and styles is evident. <laughs> Things like the use of spices, or rose water and dried fruit in medieval cookbooks. Tales and legends taken from Arab and Persian folklore, which show up in Western European stories. Styles of armor and ornamentation. Medieval literature is full of mysterious, sometimes virtuous, or even secretly Christian heroes of Muslim origin. The reason for this admiration of the Muslim world was that it was richer, more urban, more sophisticated, and so copied whatever the intermittent condemnation and motivation to launch crusades. We should not think that history is divided into periods of pure intolerance on the one hand and multicultural mutual appreciation on the other. It's possible to have both simultaneously. Ironically, it was through the Western occupation of the Holy Land that a lot of exchanges of trade, consumer taste, and artistic style took place. They took place over a hostile frontier. But then again, as we see now, the world has an incredible appetite for American commercial cultural products without thereby embracing American values. So let me conclude with a sketchy five minute or 10 minute outline of the medieval crusades. I'm going to remind you of some things you may not have thought about for many years since you were students uh, and try to put them in some historical perspective as enterprises with few connections to the contemporary world, but disturbing ones, such as they are. The First Crusade probably consisted of an army of 25,000 to 45,000 people and a kind of disorganized mob attracted by a preacher named Peter the Hermit, maybe 20,000. Uh, Peter the Hermit's group was wiped out in Hungary long before reaching the land of the infidels. Uh, about 20,000, or 15 to 20,000 people made it to the Holy Land, uh, where they did indeed encounter incredible problems of unfamiliarity with the terrain, suffering in the heat, uh, thirst, and uh, particularly starvation. The First Crusade had certain logistical problems, so daunting that it is, if not miraculous, at least surprising that they succeeded in taking Jerusalem. Geographical ignorance, the difficulties encountered by a slow-moving, heavily armored force in rugged terrain, dealing with a more mobile and flexible enemy, having a by no means inept opponent, the Seljuk Turks in particular, uh, supply problems, heat and disease, uh, and unclear leadership, which is not a logistical, but a sort of a uh, problem of this crusade. How did they win? 
they were actually very well armed, very good at certain kinds of large-scale warfare. For example, very good at building siege engines. Uh, Italian ships delivered to the shore of Palestine uh, uh, timber and equipment to build uh, the kinds of catapults and also uh, shelters that allow with ladders that allow you to approach walls. And this is how Jerusalem, for example, was taken. They were very highly motivated, ferociously motivated. They were very good soldiers uh, at both head-on reckless fighting and sieges to different kinds of fighting at which they both uh, were superior to their Islamic opponents, at least in the First Crusade. They were willing to sustain losses that frightened their opponents. And their savagery, their uh, uh, savage treatment of people who didn't capitulate to them induced many local rulers in Palestine and Syria to make deals with them. These guys were extremely tough. From October 1097 to June 1098, for example, the Muslim city of Antioch was besieged by a crusade army that itself was dying of lack of food and water. It was a contest to see who was going to sort of collapse first. In the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem in 1099, crusader states were established, but they weren't unified. So there was a kingdom of Jerusalem, a duchy of Antioch, a duchy of Tripoli, uh, one of Edessa, and so forth. They were kept intact by naval supplies from Italian city-states. So they tended to be along the coast. Even the distance between the coast and Jerusalem proved to be too much to maintain. These kingdoms were never very strong. They suffered from shortages of manpower. Very few people actually wanted to settle in the Holy Land. The idea of a crusade became, go there, do your fighting, fulfill your vows, and get the hell out and home. Um, it's kind of like, you know, a one-week Habitat for Humanity visit. <laughs> I, I hammered that, you know, a couple of boards in that roof, and now I'm going back to Larchmont. Um, I, I, really, I don't mean to be cynical. I, I take that back. I take that back. Uh, it was, uh, you know, they, were, they had a native population, both Christian and Muslim, that didn't like them. Uh, the Christian population were not actually Catholics. They were Monophysites, different kind of uh, attitude towards the nature of Christ. Uh, and these states themselves feuded. Tripoli didn't get along with Jerusalem, for example. The First Crusade was one of those phenomena, and I would liken this to the Marshall Plan, whose success was so great that people for, in this case, centuries, referred to it as, you know, what could be done if we all got together and did this properly? But it was never repeated, like the Marshall Plan. Remember the Marshall Plan for the cities or the Marshall Plan for overhauling our educational system? Uh, none of these things quite uh, uh, are repeatable. They did try. The Second Crusade from 1146 to 1149 was spurred by the loss of Edessa, uh, in what's now uh, the Syrian-Turkish uh, border uh, to the ruler of Mosul in Syria on Christmas, as it happens, 1144. And this shook the West and resulted in the Pope, Eugenius III, issuing a new crusade encyclical and entrusting the preaching of the crusade to the leading Christian spokesman and the greatest orator in Europe at that time, 
St. Bernard of Clairvaux. In March 1146, Bernard preached a sermon at Vézelay as the King of France, Louis VII, stood by his side. And here we do have the text and reports from people at the scene who said, you know, the speech made everybody cry, fall to their knees, take up the cross. Um, Bernard emphasized this as an opportunity. God doesn't really need our aid. He could take care of this another way. But what he is offering us is a way to save our souls on his behalf. This is a ruler's crusade, unlike the first crusade, which was led by nobles and knights. The king of France and the German emperor went together uh, and then separated. The emperor of Germany was badly defeated in Asia Minor, and uh, the king of France then sailed uh, from Germany uh, down the Danube to the Black Sea in Constantinople. The armies uh, that arrived were formidable but very badly led. Uh, in the end, they weren't able actually to do anything, and the armies eventually dissipated, uh, partly from disease. And um, uh, the Second Crusade worked on its other fronts, uh, resulted in the capture of land from Muslim Spain and in the capture of land in eastern Germany from pagan Slavs. So it was successful from that point of view, but it was a tremendous failure and sent uh, the same kinds of shockwaves, but in reverse through uh, Europe. St. Bernard's explanation was simply that uh, God had punished us for our pride and sinfulness. Despite this debacle, the ensuing decades were relatively peaceful and prosperous. Mid-12th century is about as good as it got for the Crusader states. But this changed with the unification of Muslim forces. As long as Islam was divided, uh, the Crusader states flourished. But they were united under Nur al-Din, known in the West as Saladin, who seized Edessa and Syria and ultimately Egypt. From 1174 to 1185, Saladin controlled this territory while the Kingdom of Jerusalem was ruled by Baldwin IV, who had the misfortune to have leprosy. Under him and his successors, factionalism divided the Christian forces. Violently reckless noble Reynald of uh, Châtillon broke the truce with Saladin. The latter attacked a faithful battle on July 4, 1187, the Battle of Hattin, resulted in the defeat of the larger Christian armies by Saladin. Saladin killed Reynald of Châtillon with his own hands and captured and ransomed the other crusade leaders, and he seized Jerusalem, notably not massacring the inhabitants, um, even though it had not heeded his surrender uh, offer. The patriarch was allowed to leave with considerable treasure, 7,000 Christians were ransomed. And again, another crusade was proclaimed. The ruler of England, Richard the Lionhearted, the ruler of France, Philip Augustus, and the emperor of Germany, Frederick Barbarossa. A very formidable group, all three tremendously uh, uh, famous and important rulers. The Third Crusade was a partial success. Frederick didn't make it. He died crossing a river in Asia Minor. Philip II, one of the greatest kings of France, was actually a very unenthusiastic soldier and preferred to intrigue against his enemy, Richard the Lionhearted, uh, in Europe to actually fighting in the Holy Land. He left quickly. 
Richard loved being in the Holy Land. He was a very good soldier and um, uh, enjoyed himself immensely. Uh, and he uh, effectively salvaged a difficult situation. He didn't take Jerusalem, but he stabilized the coastal realms. For his pains, he was captured on the way back by a Christian uh, enemy, the Duke of Austria, and held for a ransom equivalent to the gross national product uh, of England, which they came up with. So the Third Crusade was a limited success. And it brought, or bought, really, I guess, a century of Christian survival in the Holy Land, although it did not lead to the anticipated capture of Jerusalem. After that, you start to have a very odd set of crusades. The Fourth Crusade, famous, notorious, begun in 1202, culminating not with the capture of Jerusalem, but the sacking, pillaging, and takeover of the Christian city of Constantinople. It's not that they <laughs> misread their directions, uh, but that the religious separation between the Orthodox and the Catholic world um, led to a kind of mistrust culminating in this uh, unexpected uh, uh, result. Uh, in uh, 1206, a crusade was proclaimed in southern France against heretics, not against Muslims at all on the understandable, although in retrospect certainly unjustified grounds, that domestic subversion is more dangerous than foreign enemies, the Albigensian Crusade, as this is known. The last great crusade of Europeans to the Holy Land was under Louis IX, St. Louis, in the mid-13th century. After that, you have a series of wars against the expansion of Islam, particularly against the Turks. So a crusading army was defeated at Nicopolis in 1396. Crusaders were sent to aid Constantinople in 1453. One of the conventional uh, points to say the Crusades ended is 1464. On that, in that year, Pope Pius II proclaimed a crusade and personally promised to lead an army against the Turks. The port of Ancona was to be the rendezvous point, and the pope showed up, and almost no one else did. <laughs> the elderly Pius II, who interestingly enough had begun his career as a humanist, as a secular writer. His writings are humorous, witty, learned, um, uh, in his later life, he turned to religion very seriously. But while 1464 uh, might mark the end of the Crusades, it does not mark the end of this combination of religious conviction and military power. Because that combination was more successful than the actual effort to take the Holy Land. It was applied to such enterprises as the Portuguese explorations of Africa and their eventual arrival in the Indian Ocean. When one of the Muslim traders in Calicut, the Indian city that da Gama landed at, asked one of his crew uh, in Spanish, which they both understood, what the hell are you doing here? The sailor said, we came for spices and Christians. Another thing that might seem contradictory, but whose combination would prove to be very powerful. The Spanish conquests in the New World 
established, among other things, the cult of the Virgin Mary, the particular worship of the Virgin Matamoros, killer of the Moors, which still exists throughout the, uh, what was going to become Latin America. So the Crusades do have a modern impact. They have an enduring historical significance. They can be made to look as if they are part of, or even the origin of, long-standing clashes of civilizations either the first stirrings of Western energy against the Islamic world or the beginnings of a religious confrontation. In the West, we've tended to be either forgetful or embarrassed. As I said, the powerful don't tend to be too disturbed by historical processes that seem to work for them. The Islamic world has been preoccupied with the Crusades because the Islamic world has been worried about its erosion by Western modernity colonial expansion. As I said, I believe this resentment is modern, recent, and that before that, insofar as the Muslim world remembered the Crusades, they were the complacent ones remembering them as a victory. It's one of the many ironies of history that this question of the Crusades is so twisted up in memory that the victors and losers tend to exchange places. The Crusades are then a series of world-shaking events of lasting import, but not, to use Barbara Tuckman's phrase, a distant mirror of our times. So that's my talk to you today. Thank you. This has been Professor Paul Friedman, Chester D. Tripp Professor of History, speaking about the relevance of the medieval Christian Crusades to today's conflicts involving Islamic resentment towards the West.